The following was recorded by John Loth and is intended for educational purposes. This recording is not to be sold or distributed for sale. If you wish to support the work and publishing of these recordings, please visit the John Loth Patreon page. If you come across these recordings anywhere else without my expressed support and find that they are requesting donations for presenting this work to you, you will not be supporting the creator by doing so. This is just a friendly warning to anyone who may fall prey to predatory practices I have come across recently. The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 6 Japan Not Regional, but International How the American-Japanese relationship evolves is thus a critical dimension in China's geopolitical future. Since the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, America's policy in the Far East has been based on Japan. At first, only the site for the occupying American military. Japan has since become the basis for America's political military presence in the Asia-Pacific region and America's centrally important global ally, yet also as a security protectorate. The emergence of China, however, does pose the question whether, and to what end, the close American-Japanese relationship can endure in the altering regional context. Japan's role in an anti-China alliance would be clear, but what should Japan's role be if China's rise is to be accommodated in some fashion, even as it reduces America's primacy in the region? Like China, Japan is a nation-state with a deeply ingrained sense of its unique character and special status. Its insular history, even its imperial mythology, has predisposed the highly industrious and disciplined Japanese people to see themselves as endowed with a distinctive and superior way of life, which Japan first defended by splendid isolation, and then, when the world imposed itself in the 19th century, by emulating the European empires and seeking to create one of its own on the Asian mainland. The disaster of World War II then focused the Japanese people on the one-dimensional goal of economic recovery, but it also left them uncertain regarding their country's wider mission. Current American fears of a dominant China are reminiscent of the relatively recent American paranoia regarding Japan. Japanophobia has now yielded to Sinophobia. A mere decade ago, predictions of Japan's inevitable and imminent appearance as the world's superstate, poised not only to dethrone America, even to buy it out, but to impose some sort of Pax Nipponica, were a veritable cottage industry among American commentators and politicians. But not only among the Americans. The Japanese themselves soon became eager imitators, with a series of bestsellers in Japan propounding the thesis that Japan was destined to prevail in its high-tech rivalry with the United States, and that Japan would soon become the center of a global information empire, while America was allegedly sliding into a decline because of historical fatigue and social self-indulgence. These facile analyses obscured the degree to which Japan was, and remains, a vulnerable country. It is vulnerable to the slightest disruptions in the orderly global flow of resources and trade, not to mention global stability more generally, 
and it is beset by surfacing domestic weaknesses, demographic, social, and political. Japan is simultaneously rich, dynamic, and economically powerful, but it is also regionally isolated and politically limited by its security dependence on a powerful ally that happens to be the principal keeper of global stability, on which Japan so depends, as well as Japan's main economic rival. It is unlikely that Japan's current position, on the one hand, as a globally respected economic powerhouse, and, on the other, as a geopolitical extension of American power, will remain acceptable to the new generations of Japanese, no longer traumatized and shamed by the experience of World War II. For reasons of both history and self-esteem, Japan is a country not entirely satisfied with the global status quo, though in a more subdued fashion than China. It feels, with some justification, that it is entitled to formal recognition as a world power, but is also aware that the regionally useful and, to its Asian neighbors, reassuring, security dependence on America inhibits that recognition. Moreover, China's growing power on the mainland of Asia, along with the prospect that its influence may soon radiate into the maritime regions of economic importance to Japan, intensifies the Japanese sense of ambiguity regarding the country's geopolitical future. On the one hand, there is in Japan a strong cultural and emotional identification with China, as well as a latent sense of a common Asian identity. Some Japanese may also feel that the emergence of a stronger China has the expedient effect of enhancing Japan's importance to the United States as America's regional paramountcy is reduced. On the other hand, for many Japanese, China is the traditional rival, a former enemy, and a potential threat to the stability of the region. That makes the security tie with America more important than ever, even if it increases the resentment of some of the more nationalistic Japanese concerning the irksome restraints on Japan's political and military independence. There is a superficial similarity between Japan's situation in Eurasia's Far East and Germany's in Eurasia's Far West. Both are the principal regional allies of the United States. Indeed, American power in Europe and Asia is derived directly from the close alliances with these two countries. Both have respectable military establishments, but neither is independent in that regard. Germany is constrained by its military integration into NATO, while Japan is restricted by its own, though American-designed, constitutional limitations and the United States-Japan Security Treaty. Both are trade and financial powerhouses, regionally dominant and also preeminent on the global scale. Both can be classified as quasi-global powers and both chafe at the continuing denial to them of formal recognition through permanent seats on the UN Security Council. But the differences in their respective geopolitical conditions are pregnant with potentially significant consequences. Germany's actual relationship with NATO places the country on a par with its principal European allies, and, under the North Atlantic Treaty, Germany has formal reciprocal defense obligations with the United States. 
The United States-Japan Security Treaty stipulates American obligations to defend Japan, but it does not provide, even if only formally, for the use of the Japanese military in the defense of America. The treaty, in effect, codifies a protective relationship. Moreover, Germany, by its proactive membership in the European Union and NATO, is no longer seen as a threat by those neighbors who in the past were victims of its aggression, but is viewed instead as a desirable economic and political partner. Some even welcome the potential emergence of a German-led Mitteleuropa, with Germany seen as a benign regional power. That is far from the case with Japan's Asian neighbors, who harbor lingering animosity toward Japan over World War II. A contributing factor to neighborly resentment is the appreciation of the yin, which has not only prompted bitter complaints, but has impeded reconciliation with Malaysia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and even China, 30% of whose large long-term debts to Japan are in yin. Japan also has no equivalent in Asia to Germany's France, that is, a genuine and more or less equal regional partner. There is admittedly a strong cultural attraction to China, mingled perhaps with a sense of guilt, but that attraction is politically ambiguous in that neither side trusts the other and neither is prepared to accept the other's regional leadership. Japan also has no equivalent to Germany's Poland, that is, a much weaker but geopolitically important neighbor with whom reconciliation and even cooperation is becoming a reality. Perhaps Korea, especially so after eventual reunification, could become that equivalent. But Japanese-Korean but Japanese-Korean relations are only formally good, with the Korean memories of past domination and the Japanese sense of cultural superiority impeding any genuine social reconciliation. Finally, Japan's relations with Russia have been much cooler than Germany's. Russia still retains the southern Kuril Islands by force, which it seized just before the end of World War II, thereby freezing the Russo-Japanese relationship. In brief, Japan is politically isolated in its region, whereas Germany is not. In addition, Germany shares with its neighbors both common democratic principles and Europe's broader Christian heritage. It also seeks to identify and even sublimate itself within an entity and a cause larger than itself, namely that of Europe. In contrast, there is no comparable Asia. Indeed, Japan's insular past and even its current democratic system tend to separate it from the rest of the region, in spite of the emergence in recent years of democracy in several Asian countries. Many Asians view Japan not only as nationally selfish, but also as overly imitative of the West and reluctant to join them in questioning the West's views on human rights and on the importance of individualism. Thus, Japan is perceived as not truly Asian by many Asians, even as the West occasionally wonders to what degree Japan has truly become Western. In effect, though in Asia, Japan is not comfortably Asian. That condition greatly limits its geostrategic options. A genuinely regional option, that of a regionally preponderant Japan, 
that overshadows China, even if no longer based on Japanese domination, but rather on benign Japanese-led regional cooperation, does not seem viable for solid historical, political, and cultural reasons. Furthermore, Japan remains dependent on American military protection and international sponsorship. The abrogation or even the gradual emasculation of the United States-Japan Security Treaty would render Japan instantly vulnerable to the disruptions that any serious manifestation of regional or global turmoil might produce. The only alternatives, then, would be either to accept China's regional predominance or to undertake a massive and not only costly but also very dangerous program of military rearmament. Understandably, many Japanese find their country's present position simultaneously a quasi-global power and a security protectorate to be anomalous. But dramatic and viable alternatives to the existing arrangements are not self-evident. If it can be said that China's national goals, notwithstanding the inescapable variety of views among the Chinese strategists on specific aspects, are reasonably clear and the regional thrust of China's geopolitical ambitions relatively predictable. Japan's geostrategic vision tends to be relatively cloudy, and the Japanese public mood much more ambiguous. Most Japanese realize that a strategically significant and abrupt change, of course, could be dangerous. Can Japan become a regional power in a region where it is still the object of resentment, and where China is emerging as the regionally preeminent power? Yet, should Japan simply acquiesce in such a Chinese role? Can Japan become a truly comprehensive global power, in all its dimensions, without jeopardizing American support and galvanizing even more regional animosity? And will America, in any case, stay put in Asia? And if it does, how will its reaction to China's growing influence impinge on the priority so far given to the American-Japanese connection? For most of the Cold War, none of these questions ever had to be raised. Today, they have become strategically salient and are propelling an increasingly lively debate in Japan. Since the 1950s, Japanese foreign policy has been guided by four basic principles promulgated by post-war Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida. The Yoshida Doctrine postulated that 1. Japan's main goal should be economic development. 2. Japan should be lightly armed and should avoid involvement in international conflicts. 3. Japan should follow the political leadership of and accept military protection from the United States. And 4. Japanese diplomacy should be non-ideological and should focus on international cooperation. However, since many Japanese also felt uneasy about the extent of Japan's involvement in the Cold War, the fiction of semi-neutrality was simultaneously cultivated. Indeed, as late as 1981, Foreign Minister Masayoshi Aito was forced to resign for having permitted the term alliance, domif, to be used in characterizing U.S.-Japan relations. That is now all past. Japan was then recovering, China was self-isolated, and Eurasia was polarized. By contrast, Japan's political elite now senses that a rich Japan 
economically involved in the world, can no longer define self-enrichment as its central national purpose without provoking international resentment. Further, an economically powerful Japan, especially one that competes with America, cannot simply be an extension of American foreign policy while at the same time avoiding any international political responsibilities. A politically more influential Japan, especially one that seeks global recognition, for example, a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, cannot avoid taking stands on the more critical security or geopolitical issues affecting world peace. As a result, recent years have seen a proliferation of special studies and reports by a variety of Japanese public and private bodies, as well as a plethora of often controversial books by well-known politicians and professors outlining new missions for Japan in the post-Cold War era. Many of these have involved speculation regarding the durability and desirability of the American-Japanese Security Alliance and have advocated a more active Japanese diplomacy, especially toward China or a more energetic Japanese military role in the region. If one were to judge the state of the American-Japanese connection on the basis of the public dialogue, one would be justified in concluding that by the mid-1990s, relations between the two countries had entered a crisis stage. However, on the level of public policy, the seriously discussed recommendations have been, on the whole, relatively sober, measured, and moderate. The extreme options, that of outright pacifism, tinged with an anti-U.S. flavor, or of unilateral and major rearmament, requiring a revision of the Constitution and pursued presumably in defiance of an adverse American and regional reaction, have won few adherents. The public appeal of pacifism has, if anything, waned in recent years and unilateralism and militarism have also failed to gain much public support, despite the advocacy of some flamboyant spokesmen. The public at large, and certainly the influential business elite, viscerally sense that neither option provides a real policy choice and, in fact, could only endanger Japan's well-being. The politically dominant public discussions have primarily involved differences and emphasis regarding Japan's basic international posture, with some secondary variations concerning geopolitical priorities. In broad terms, three major orientations, and perhaps a minor fourth one, can be identified and labeled as follows. The unabashed American firsters, the global mercantilists, the proactive realists, and the international visionaries. However, in the final analysis, all four share the same, rather general goal and partake of the same central concern, to exploit the special relationship with the United States in order to gain global recognition for Japan, while avoiding Asian hostility and without prematurely jeopardizing the American security umbrella. The first orientation takes as its point of departure the proposition that the maintenance of the existing an admittedly asymmetrical American-Japanese relationship should remain the central core of Japan's geostrategy. Its adherents desire, as do most Japanese, greater international recognition for Japan 
and more equality in the alliance. But it is their cardinal article of faith. As Prime Minister Kaiichi Miyazawa put it in January 1993, that the outlook for the world going into the 21st century will largely depend on whether or not Japan and the United States are able to provide coordinated leadership under a shared vision. This viewpoint has been dominant within the internationalist political elite and the foreign policy establishment that has held power over the course of the last two or so decades. On the key geostrategic issues of China's regional role and America's presence in Korea, the leadership has been supportive of the United States, but it also sees its role as a source of restraint on any American propensity to adopt a confrontationist posture toward China. In fact, even this group has become increasingly inclined to emphasize the need for closer Japanese-Chinese relations, ranking them in importance just below the ties with America. The second orientation does not contest the geostrategic identification of Japan's policy with Americas, but it sees Japanese interests as best served by the frank recognition and acceptance of the fact that Japan is primarily an economic power. This outlook is most often associated with the traditionally influential bureaucracy of the MITI, Ministry of International Trade and Industry, and with the country's trading and export business leadership. In this view, Japan's relative demilitarization is an asset worth preserving. With America assuring the security of the country, Japan is free to pursue a policy of global economic engagement, which quietly enhances its global standing. In an ideal world, the second orientation would be inclined to favor a policy of at least de facto neutralism, with America offsetting China's regional power and thereby protecting Taiwan and South Korea, thus making Japan free to cultivate a closer economic relationship with the mainland and with Southeast Asia. However, given the existing political realities, the global mercantilists accept the American-Japanese alliance as a necessary arrangement, including the relatively modest budgetary outlays for the Japanese armed forces, still not much exceeding 1% of the country's GDP. But they are not eager to infuse the alliance with any regionally significant substance. The third group, the proactive realists tend to be the new breed of politicians and geopolitical thinkers. They believe that as a rich and successful democracy, Japan has both the opportunity and the obligation to make a real difference in the post-Cold War world. By doing so, it can also gain the global recognition to which Japan is entitled as an economic powerhouse that historically ranks among the world's few truly great nations. The appearance of such a more muscular Japanese posture was foreshadowed in the 1980s by Prime Minister Yasuhiro Nakasone, but perhaps the best-known exposition of that perspective was contained in the controversial Ozawa Committee Report, published in 1994 and entitled, suggestively, Blueprint for a New Japan, The Rethinking of a Nation. Named after the committee's chairman, Ichiro Ozawa, a rapidly rising centralist political leader, the report advocated both 
a democratization of the country's hierarchical political culture, and a rethinking of Japan's international posture. Urging Japan to become a normal country, the report recommended the retention of the American-Japanese security connection, but also counseled that Japan should abandon its international passivity by becoming actively engaged in global politics, especially by taking the lead in international peacekeeping efforts. To that end, the report recommended that the country's constitutional limitations on the dispatch abroad of Japanese armed forces be lifted. Left unsaid but implied by the emphasis on a normal country was also the notion of a more significant geopolitical emancipation from America's security blanket. The advocates of this viewpoint tended to argue that on matters of global importance, Japan should not hesitate to speak up for Asia, instead of automatically following the American lead. However, they remained characteristically vague on such sensitive matters as the growing regional role of China or the future of Korea, not differing much from their more traditionalist colleagues. Thus, in regard to regional security, they partook of the still strong Japanese inclination to let both matters remain primarily the responsibility of America, with Japan merely exercising a moderating role on any excessive American zeal. By the second half of the 1990s, this proactive realist orientation was beginning to dominate public thinking and affect the formulation of Japanese foreign policy. In the first half of 1996, the Japanese government started to speak of Japan's independent diplomacy, Jaishu Gaiko, even though the ever-cautious Japanese foreign ministry chose to translate the Japanese phrase as the vaguer and, to America's presumably less pointed, term, proactive diplomacy. The fourth orientation, that of the international visionaries, has been less influential than any of the preceding, but it occasionally serves to infuse the Japanese viewpoint with more idealistic rhetoric. It tends to be associated publicly with outstanding individuals, like Akio Morita of Sony, who personally dramatized the importance to Japan of a demonstrative committee to morally desirable global goals, often invoking the notion of a new global order. The visionaries call on Japan precisely because it is not burdened by geopolitical responsibilities to be a global leader in the development and advancement of a truly humane agenda for the world community. All four orientations are in agreement on one key regional issue, that the emergence of more multilateral Asia-Pacific cooperation is in Japan's interest. Such cooperation can have, over time, three positive effects. It can help engage, and also subtly, to restrain China. It can help to keep America in Asia, even while gradually, even while gradually reducing its predominance. And it can help to mitigate anti-Japanese resentment and thus increase Japan's influence. Although it is unlikely to create a Japanese sphere of regional influence, it might gain Japan some degree of regional deference, especially in the offshore maritime countries that may be uneasy over China's growing power. 
All four viewpoints also agree that a cautious cultivation of China is much to be preferred over any American-led effort toward the direct containment of China. In fact, the notion of an American-led strategy to contain China, or even the idea of an informal balancing coalition confined to the island states of Taiwan, the Philippines, Brunei, and Indonesia, backed by Japan and America, has had no significant appeal for the Japanese foreign policy establishment. In the Japanese perspective, any effort of that sort would not only require an indefinite and major American military presence in both Japan and Korea, but, by creating an incendiary geopolitical overlap between Chinese and American-Japanese regional interests, see map on page 184, would be likely to become a self-fulfilling prophecy of a collision with China. The result would be to inhibit Japan's evolutionary emancipation and threaten the Far East's economic well-being. By the same token, few favor the opposite, a grand accommodation between Japan and China. The regional consequences of such a classical reversal of alliances would be too unsettling. An American withdrawal from the region as well as the prompt subordination of both Taiwan and Korea to China, leaving Japan at China's mercy. This is not an appealing prospect, save perhaps to a few extremists. With Russia geopolitically marginalized and historically despised, there is thus no alternative to the basic consensus that the link with America remains Japan's central lifeline. Without it, Japan can neither ensure itself a steady supply of oil, nor protect itself from a Chinese, and perhaps soon, also a Korean, nuclear bomb. The only real policy issue is how best to manipulate the American connection in order to advance Japanese interests. Accordingly, the Japanese have gone along with American desires to enhance American-Japanese military cooperation including the seemingly increased scope from the more specific Far East to a broader Asia-Pacific formula. Consistent with this, in early 1996, in its review of the so-called Japan-U.S. Defense Guidelines, the Japanese government also broadened its reference to the possible use of Japanese defense forces from in Far East emergencies to emergencies in Japan's neighboring regions. Japanese willingness to accommodate America on this matter has also been driven by percolating doubts regarding America's long-term staying power in Asia, and by concerns that China's rise and America's seeming anxiety over it could at some point in the future still impose on Japan an unacceptable choice to stand with America against China or without America and allied with China. For Japan, that fundamental dilemma also contains a historic imperative, since becoming a dominant regional power is not a viable goal, and since without a regional base the attainment of truly comprehensive global power is unrealistic, it follows that Japan can best attain the status of a global leader through active involvement in worldwide peacekeeping and economic development. By taking advantage of the American-Japanese military alliance to ensure the stability of the Far East, but without letting it evolve into an anti-Chinese coalition, 
Japan can safely carve out a distinctive and influential global mission as the power that promotes the emergence of genuinely international and more effectively institutionalized cooperation. Japan could thus become a much more powerful and globally influential equivalent of Canada, a state that is respected for the constructive use of its wealth and power, but one that is neither feared nor resented.